Life, it says here, is an experience that narrows expectations. I'll give you an example. Normally at this time of year when the sermon is finished, half of the sanctuary will empty out. And I'll ask myself year after year, what could we do next year to make it so that more people would stay in the sanctuary? After all, I love seeing everybody here. This year, I would take even half of the numbers <laughs> who were in the building, and I would be very grateful for it. So a week ago, I had a rabbinical bonanza when two Yom Kippur jokes landed in my inbox. And even better, they both have a point. And trust me when I tell you that such things are very rare finds and deeds. So here's one of them. A rabbi walks outside during the break on Yom Kippur to catch some fresh air. Outside, he sees Irving eating a ham sandwich. He says to him, Irving, did you forget it was Yom Kippur? And Irving says, I didn't forget. Did you forget you're not supposed to eat on Yom Kippur? He says, no, I remember that too. Did you forget that even if you have to eat on Yom Kippur, you're still supposed to eat kosher food? And Irving says, no, I knew that too. So the rabbi says to him, well, Irving, what did you forget? And Irving thinks for a moment and says, I forgot I was Jewish. Now there's a point to this. There are lots of Jews, and for the record, it's probably not you because you're listening this morning who effectively forget they're Jewish. Not literally, of course, but in life, in the priorities, in thinking, over time, the year, we forget. This past year, I was in Berlin for two months teaching aspiring rabbinic students, and during that time, I taught them the standard curriculum of Jewish law, Talmud, and customs that every rabbi should know. But them knowing that I came from Toronto, a great Jewish community, and that I was the rabbi at Beth Shalom Synagogue, a special synagogue, they asked me to teach them not only what a rabbi should know, but also what a rabbi should understand. And in my last class, I told them above all else, Make people remember. Make them remember what they came from. Make them remember who they are. And perhaps above all else, to remember the life that they dreamed of. Make them remember that. The life that they wish for and what we imagine for ourselves. To live, as Carl Jung wrote, that people, he said, most people will do anything, no matter how absurd, to avoid facing their own souls but those who do, they edge higher. Now I know this is not a typical Yom Kippur. Of course, there's nothing actually typical about Yom Kippur to begin with. What with his fasting from food and drink. But what I find interesting is, is that if you asked me what in nearly 30 years of being a rabbi that I see most in people, I wouldn't say it's depression, anxiety, or stress disorders. I would say what I see most in people is hunger. We are hungry creatures, hungry for approval, attention, and affection. And on Yom Kippur, we are asked to be hungry to really know and understand ourselves. So this morning, I will share two stories with you. After hearing them, they will be the only two that will be needed for this morning. And you will be able to hear them again and again, year in and year out, and you will be no, no worse for knowing them better than the first time you heard them. The first one is a story of one woman 
Her name is Ava. Ava now is 15 years old. She's a wisp of a girl who in that moment is living in Hungary. Hungary, of course, was a location of the last great liquidation of European Jewry. It is the spring of 1944, and the Germans know that the war is lost. But rather than negotiate for peace or divert men and resources to fight the war, the Nazis poured their remaining efforts into murdering as many Jews as possible. It's the first night of Passover, and her father would be chanting, why is this the night different from all other nights? And come sunrise, they would know the answer. SS-aided militia, Hungarian militia break into their home. They drag them from their beds, giving them five minutes to pack their bags, and they are herded to a holding area just outside of their town. They will sleep on the floor, and they will cover themselves in the coats and shiver through the spring chill. There is no running water there. Ava sees her old gym teacher in the barracks next door, struggling to take care of a newborn baby. What will I do when the milk is gone, she cries. My baby just cries and cries. They're there for a month, and then they're shoved into a cattle car where they travel for a week without food and little water, and then the train stops. The doors open, and Ava sees the sign. Arbet macht frei. In the distance, there are chimneys churning out plumes of snow, smoke. If our eyes were there, and we scanned the scene, we would see in and amongst the massive crowd that there were three women clutching each other's hands. It is Ava, her sister Magda, and their mother. Men in uniforms push them, barking in simple directions. Vater, vater, go forward, go forward. And there is a man with a conductor's finger sitting at a table. He is perfectly uniformed in a black hat, a long black leather coat, shiny boots, black leather gloves. He has cold eyes, a gapped tooth, and a strange smile. Is anyone sick? He asks. Is anyone over 40? Is anyone pregnant? Are there anyone with young children? Are you under 14? Go left. And there is Ava. Magda and her mother at the mouth of this turn, and they don't know if this will be their last moment together. It is a moment frozen. The truth is, in life, there are moments like that, some very big and some not so big, but they are defining moments that frame who we are. They are moments that teach us how to find and understand what life can give us. Now, strangely, and I wonder if it happens to you too, but I find that as I age, that there are fewer and fewer stories that have real meaning for me. But I also find that the ones that do, they become unshakable to me. These are the ones that stay with me, the ones where in the quiet moments of my life, I feel them bubbling up over and over again. Some of the stories are the ones that I have learned, some of the stories of my own but I want to share some of them with you. Now, the ones that I've learned, the one that stands above all the others, it is where there is an outlaw shepherd. Once a prince climbs a mountain and finds a bush that is burning, the bushwalk consumed with fire mysteriously, magically, unbelievably, doesn't get consumed by this fire. The shepherd, a man who is known as Moses, freezes at that sight. 
And when I think of that moment, I do too. I often think of it, of a man standing there between two realities, of a world that he knows and a future that is unknown to him, of seeing something that you know now will forever change your life, forever, that you will never be the same person. And nor am I alone in this, because even the ancient rabbis wondered and wandered over this moment. Those rabbis knew the story, also had a secret to it. A secret that if you look deeper would reveal something also about your life. A secret that is revealed only with questions. A question like, why did Moses go to that mountain? The truth is the Torah tells us next to nothing about Moses' decision to go there. Which is only to say that he gets up one morning, he grabs the sheep that he has taken a thousand days before. But in this morning, he makes a turn, climbs the mountain, and why does he do that? But archaeology has an answer for us. That mountain, later called Sinai, now known as Har Hakom, was a place where people for ages, long before Moses, gathered to meet the divine. We know this from the remains of thousands of years of people leaving religious artifacts behind. It would also become the place the freed Israelites from Egypt would come to for their Ten Commandments, which is to say that Moses just didn't go there. It wasn't an accident that he headed up the morning. Moses woke up that morning and decided that he could no longer be who he was. He couldn't live how he lived. Moses left the house that morning in search of God. The story tells us that if we search in the right place, you will find another question. But I'm not going to use the word bush. I'm going to use the Hebrew word, sneh, because that's the word that the Torah uses for it. And if you listen carefully to the word sneh, you will find the root of the word Sinai. Vayavo el har Elohim, and Moses comes to the mountain of God. Vayam malach Adonai mitoch and Moses looks inside the, the sne, and there is an angel of God, bo'er, and the sne is burning, ukal, but it is not consumed. The first thing is we have no idea what a sne actually is. Lots of scholars over lots of time have tried to imagine and guess their way to an answer, but the fact is nobody knows for sure what was burning. The one thing that everyone does know, everyone knows what fire is. The power of Moses' moment isn't what is said. In fact, nothing is said. It is found in the fact that the fire burns. Now for a tradition like ours, one that is filled with words, this is an arresting idea because it tells us that there are moments where words don't live, only feelings. Now we try to fill them with words, but deep inside, inside the place that Yom Kippur and Yisker tries to open, is a world of emotion, of hurts and fears, of loss and sadness. And if you look closer, you'll find anger and regret. You'll find questions asking, did I really do that? Why did I want one thing and then do another? 
It asks, filled with all these feelings, how do I live? How do I carry on? If the German thinker Schopenhauer was right, and I deeply believe he is, then this is the central question to all human life, to everyone who lives. But why doesn't the sneb burn up? What wordless message was being shown to Moses and to the thousands of years of Jews who would live to hear the story? The answer to that question is found in Ava's story. She, her mother, and her sister Magda were inches from the table with a man with a conductor's finger was sitting. He was perfectly uniformed in that black hat, black leather coat, shiny boots, and black leather gloves. He has cold eyes, gap teeth, and a strange smile. His name is Joseph Mengele. Is anyone sick? Over 40? Pregnant? Anyone with young children? Are you under 14? Go left. Now, no one knows the meaning of being sent left or right. And now it's their turn. And Mengele lifts his finger to Eva's mother. And looking at Eva, he asks her, is she your mother or your sister? Now, her mother's hair is gray, but her face is smooth. She could pass for a sister. Eva then speaks the word that she has spent the rest of her life trying to forget. She's my mother. And as soon as the word leaves her mouth, she wants to take it back. But it's too late. Mangala points her mother to go left. She follows the young children and the elderly, the mothers who are pregnant and holding their babies in their arms. And Eva runs to her mother, but Mangala grabs her. And he says, you'll see your mother very soon, don't you worry. Ava Mothers turned to look at her with a small smile and then walks away with the other women and children towards the locker rooms. And Ava would later say that if she had known that her mother was going to die that day, she would have said a different word. But we never know. None of us are gifted to see beyond the moment that we live in. It is why this moment is so precious and so meaningful. It's why this moment is so important. Years later, Eva writes that she was racked with the question, why didn't I say sister when she could have saved, if even for a day, her mother's life? And yet how easily life can become a litany of guilt and regret. regret. How easily we are seduced by the fantasy that we are in control of things that are beyond ourselves. I can tell you that in time, Eva would choose to see a young 16-year-old girl and the choice that she made when she was hungry and terrified, when they were surrounded by dogs and guns and smoke-choked chimneys and uncertainty. Ava would come to see the secret of the fire that Moses saw, the one that we see in the story we tell over and over again, that the fire does not consume the snare. The fire tells us that we can live with things that burn us and things that hurt us. We can survive the fire of loss and regret that rages inside of us because this is the weight of living life, of carrying memories, of knowing that there are things we wish had not happened, but because they did, we are now the people who we are, of the people we have lost that we wish hadn't been taken. As for me, 
I also see this as the choice to accept myself as I am. I am human and imperfect. And the choice to be responsible for my own happiness, to function as well as I can, to commit myself to serve others, to do everything in my power to honor the people who are no longer alive, but who I love, to see to it that they did not die in vain, to remember not how they died, but how they lived, to do my best in my limited capacity so that future generations will live even a little bit better, to stop running from the past, to do everything possible to redeem it, and then let it go. We can't ever change the past, but Yom Kippur, this moment, teaches us that there is one life that you can save, and that's your own. This one that you're living right now in this awesome, precious moment of your life. Gamar Chatimatoba.